Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, David Griffith of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, our own Aaron Churchill, the Ohio Director of Research at the Fordham Institute, joins us to discuss Ohio's latest education wins. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber discusses a study that finds students who attend high-performing charters are less likely to engage in risky behaviors such as drug use. This is the Education Gadfly Show. Do you remember just say no? (laughs) I remember all you got to say is no. And then I think I'm pretty sure I said yes. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, David Griffith of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now please welcome our very own Aaron Churchill. Aaron, welcome to the show. David, it's great to be on the podcast and uh, looking forward to talking today. Good to see you as well, Aaron. You are, of course, a fellow... Parent, how is dad life these days? Well, I have a three and a half year old, so it is running around a lot and um, trying to keep him uh, from killing himself, essentially. So keeping him away from cliffs and um, away from uh, deep water and all all the rest of the things. But so far, he's still alive and he's kicking. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun, but we uh, we love him and it's quite a ride being a, being a new parent. And of course, you are also the Ohio Research Director, and you're here to talk to us about some exciting things that have been happening in Ohio. So let's get right down to it on EdReform Update. All right, Aaron, you are here, as I understand it, to talk about Ohio's most recent education budget uh, and maybe some other things as well. So let's dive right in. What's so exciting about what's been happening in Ohio? Sure. So... Um, Ohio uh, is one of the states that does two-year budget cycles. So 2023 was a big year for us because Ohio did the uh, its state budget for fiscal year 2024 and 2025. Um, it's important to note, just as brief context, um, a lot of our education policy gets done through these state budgets. It's a big omnibus piece of legislation that covers almost every facet of state government, covers K-12 education policy, and a number of other things. The very exciting news out of the state budget proceedings this year was some very significant advancements on the educational choice front. We also had some uh, additional improvements in our literacy policies, uh, like a number of other states really pushing the science of reading um, in their early grades. And then we had a governance overhaul as well at the state level. Um, so we'll talk more about all of those things, but you know, maybe as a starting point, we can talk about the choice issues. So choice in Ohio, we ha- we've had a tremendous history on, on educational choice, um, starting in the 1990s with charter schools and the advent of uh, private school vouchers. Um, one of the major issues that has held back our charter sector especially is we've seen our charters underfunded. Most charters, the average brick and charter school in Ohio receives about 70 cents on the dollar compared to their local traditional district. And that's put them at a tremendous disadvantage in terms of recruiting teachers, growing their schools to serve more kids, especially our high performers. Um, and it's just you know been an unfair way of funding charter schools um, in general. Um, we believe that kids, you know, the same students should be funded equitably whether they attend a charter or district school. What this budget did was significantly narrow that funding gap. Um, It did it through several different mechanisms, but for high quality charter schools in Ohio, they will now receive about 90% of what their local district receives. For the average brick and mortar charter school to be about 85%. The significant thing they do for high high performing charter schools is they include a $3,000 per economically disadvantaged supplement 
Um, this is double the amount that was previously allocated for high quality charters. Um, and that is going to be significant and a game changer for our high performing charter schools that mainly exist in our urban schools. And Aaron, maybe we should pause right there because, I mean, you actually mentioned possibly one of the only things about this that I question, right? Which is this notion that, you know, that high performing schools, as I understand it, they, they perform well and then they get more money as a result, right? And that certainly sounds good because we, you know, as we all know, one of the big problems in education in general is that we throw good money after bad, right? But it does make me wonder, right, you know, five or 10 years down the road here, if, you know, we have some bad charter schools in Ohio, are they going to claim that they're bad because they're uh, underfunded? Do you worry about that at all? Well, I think even some of the lower performing charter schools will be funded more closer to parity. Um, so right now, you know, they're, like I said, they're funded about 70 cents on the dollar. So they'll be up to 85% under the new budget plan. There's some additional funding that flows to all brick and mortar charter schools and not just high performers as well. So I think, you know, yes, that could be an issue. Um, but what we've seen is that these high, the high performing supplement that goes to the, the quality charter schools can help drive improvement. Um, it's an incentive for schools to try to uh, get better and receive those dollars. And then it also functions basically like performance-based funding, where it rewards the best charter schools um, to try to help them expand their capacity. And that's something Ohio has admittedly struggled with, I think, over the years, is trying to build that capacity for high-quality charter schools to grow and serve more kids, especially in our urban communities where um, the needs are the greatest in terms of academics. And so the idea, the original idea of the high-quality charter funding was really to try to help these schools our best charter schools expand and, and serve more kids, particularly in our in our urban communities where where there's there's so much need in terms of closing achievement gaps and giving kids the opportunities. So, there, as I understand it, there was also a major expansion of private school choice as well, right? Yes. So, on the private school uh, voucher side, Ohio has now moved to universal private school choice, um, like in several other states across the, across the country. Um, Arizona and uh, a few others. Um, so anybody in Ohio, if your family is eligible for what we call an Ed Choice private school scholarship. The one wrinkle with our uh, universal choice program moving forward is that all families who earn up to 450% of the federal poverty level, which is about $135,000 per year, they will receive the full private school scholarship amount, which is about $6,000 for elementary and middle school kids and about $8,100 for high school student. They all receive that full voucher amount. For students above the 450% federal poverty threshold, they'll receive re gradually reduced scholarship amounts. So the idea there was, well, one, it was basic kind of funding equity principles where, you know, we want to make sure that the dollars are being targeted to the lowest income families, the kids who really need uh, the financial assistance to access a private school. Um, whereas, you know, families that are wealthier are more likely to be able to pay out of pocket for, for tuition. And then the other issue is just simply the fiscal impact of trying to expand eligibility to all families. And so that did reduce some of the price tag of making uh, making private school choice uh, universal. So very exciting things in terms of eligibility. Yeah, talk about that price tag. That's not quite the word I would use for it, but you know, this has to have. As, first of all, as I understand it, is there no cap then on the number of families that can get these these dollars? I mean, that the state will fund it no matter how many families apply. Yeah, no cap um, in terms of the state budget. So the um, 
if, you know, a whole number of students choose to apply for the scholarships, there's not a specific cap on that. And then I guess maybe the question then is, what do we think uptake is going to look like? I'm sure that's a little hard to gauge. Yeah, I mean, I think over the years, what we've seen is a gradual uptake in private school scholarships. So we've had, uh, Ohio has had a long history of offering um, scholarships or vouchers to to the families, especially in urban communities. Right now, it's probably about 5% of, uh, if you look at the city of Dayton or Columbus, where kids have been historically eligible for, for vouchers, um, it's somewhere around maybe 10% of the students will take a voucher. So I would expect, you know, uh, some students and some more students in higher income or middle income communities um, taking a harder look at private school choices in their in their neighborhoods because now they have some financial support. So I think you, there will be a little bit of uptake, but I don't think it'll be you know a massive exodus or anything like that from the public schools. And we know that a lot of parents in middle and higher income communities pick their traditional public school um, intentionally, and they they purchase houses in their communities. And a lot of those public schools um, meet the needs of their kids. Um, but what we are now moving toward is a program where. You know, any family, regardless of where you live or your income, has some form of tuition assistance. All right. And there's so much that we could talk about here. But very briefly, do you want to say just a little bit about the science of reading based reforms as well? Yeah, I'll keep this quick. So science of reading is actually pretty straightforward. So this, the governor, uh, led by Governor DeWine, um, he really pushed the science of reading in his budget and it was approved. The idea there is that all, uh, all schools in Ohio would adopt a, a curricula, a reading curricula that's aligned with science reading. And he put in about $170 million, $170 million over the biennium to help support um, teacher professional development and curricula. And that would make sure that our elementary middle schools are teaching um, in alignment with, the, with phonics and, and the type of um, instruction that we know is good for kids. Sounds great, Aaron. What, what could go wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very optimistic for where we're going in Ohio. I think, especially with the governor's leadership on this issue, he's really made it um, something that I think will hopefully have some sustainability over the long haul in terms of moving our, our instruction in the right direction. All right. Final question. Uh, and it's the question I always ask because it's it's so hard to answer. These seem like really big changes, honestly. Universal private school choice, a 40% increase in uh, charter funding. Uh, my assumption is you guys have been beating the drum on this for at least a decade. Why now? What do you think? What do you think accounted for this sort of breakthrough? Yeah, I mean, I think the stars aligned. I mean, I think that that's part of it is you know being able to um, make the case over and over again that charter schools are underfunded and that they need more additional dollars. I think we were helped, you know, just frankly, is that our state budget was actually in pretty decent condition this year. Um, revenues really kind of come up um, after the COVID recession, the brief dip, um, and sort of come back quite significantly. So in addition to expanding private school choice and incre increasing charter school funding, the legislature is able to increase uh, traditional public school funding by about 12% over the next biennium. And so I think the ability to sort of move everybody, um, whether it's private, charter, or traditional district, in the right direction in terms of funding was one opportunity that that allowed for some of these changes to occur. And then I think as well, in addition to the fiscal condition of the state, was just simply leadership. Governor DeWine um, being able to go out there and really talk about the science of reading and, and spend his um, leadership capital on that issue, I think was critical to making sure that um, initiative got over the finish line. So I think it would be leadership and then 
you know, the in terms of the fiscal stuff, trying to ha- have having a budget that allowed for for these type of measures. Both very plausible points and exciting. I think from as someone who's been watching the state for uh, not as long as you, but long enough to care about it. Wish we could talk about it more, but I think that's all the time we have for today. So thanks so much, Aaron. And uh, we'll have to have you on again. Excellent. Thanks a lot, David. All right. And now it's time for Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, David. How was your weekend? Well, you know, I was moving. I was help. Well, let me say, I was helping my sister to move. Oh, that's nice. Ninety-nine degrees here, David. Uh, me, my sister, and my seventy-year-old, seventy-eight-year-old dad moving in ninety-nine degree weather. I was, I was really worried about him. I kept saying, you know, Dad, you need to get some electrolytes in you. Well, that's true love, though, right? Pretty amazing. My dad still climbs trees to go hunting, so he's, uh, he's doing pretty good for seventy-eight. No kidding. Wow. I hope they're short trees. No offense. <laughs> but anyway, we, we we got it done. We weren't in the air conditioning with kiddos like you were looking at museums. So yeah, yeah. We made like our 500th trip to the Natural History Museum. I imagine there are more in our future as long as this is how the summers are going to be. But yeah, you know, it was fun. It gets a little gets a little bit more meaningful every time and um, building content knowledge and all that. So that's it. That is it. Well, what you got for us? We have a study. I don't usually go to this journal, but it was in the Journal of the American Medical Association, J-A-M-A. It had a strong study design, and I like the outcomes that we don't typically measure when we're looking at the impacts of high-performing schools. So there were a, a team of MDs and PhDs conducted the study. It looked at whether exposure to high-quality charter schools through admission lotteries is associated with risky adolescent health behaviors. So uh, they're looking at self-reported use of marijuana and alcohol in the last 30 days, as well as high-risk use, meaning whether they're engaging in other high-risk behaviors associated with developing a substance use disorder. So these are things like asking the kids if they get in trouble because of the marijuana use, if they've ever missed school because of marijuana use, or if they've ever used marijuana at school. Then they drill down, they ask the same thing about alcohol. Then they drill down into potential mechanisms or intermediate factors that might you know, help explain some of these patterns or lack thereof. They look at truancy, school mobility, school culture, proportion of substance using peers in their social networks school order, and so on. It was a survey of almost 1,300 students. It was administered in the low-income minority communities in and around Los Angeles. A sample was drawn from a larger, larger study called Rise Up that looked at various charter outcomes. So they had already randomly assigned students to treatment and control schools. In this particular study, the participating schools had to enroll majority economically disadvantaged students have academic performance in the top tercile of public high schools in LA, have an oversubscription of applicants, so at least 50 or more kids than available seats are wanting to get in, and they've got to use an admissions lottery. So ultimately, five schools met all those criteria and chose to participate. From each school, they randomly sampled, stratified by lottery results from the list of lottery winners and losers during two years to identify participants. Eligible kids had to have applied for ninth grade admission to one of these five schools way back in the fall of 2013-14. Took a while to get into the journal of uh, of medicine here. Yeah, okay. (laughs) You know, you, you hear about this timeline. They had to reside in Los Angeles and speak English or Spanish. 
They ended up with 576 lottery losers, 694 lottery winners, and they collected data through the 11th grade year. So their last survey of kids was at the end of 11th grade. It's an intent to treat analysis that some kids who won the lottery did not enroll in this top tercile school and vice versa. All right, we're at results. Descriptively, a bunch of stuff, but the biggest important thing was that the sample was 90% of kids identifying as Latino. The ITT results show that the treatment group of lottery winners had less marijuana misuse than the control group, fewer substance using peers, so 10% versus 13%, so not huge. The um, treatment group spent more time studying, 2.6 hours versus 2.4 hours. I'm guessing that's a week. They had less truancy, 84% versus 77% responded no truancy. They also had greater teacher support for college attendance, more orderly schools, and less school mobility. They witnessed these reductions in risky behavior as early as ninth grade, like it was what didn't take too long. Uh, researchers also found that low income minority boys benefited more when it came to marijuana use and alcohol misuse when they looked at differences by gender, but it, it wasn't huge. I actually don't think most of those differences were statistically significant. And then finally, when they started looking at these patterns and trying to figure out, you know, here, where are some relationships that might help explain what's going on? They found that student social networks and school culture were particularly important they can't tell if that's because high-performing charters isolate students from their more unruly or deviant peers, or that they have practices that enhance school culture and positive teacher reports, or a mixture of both. Regardless, and I think we know this, it appears that high-quality schools and school environments offer not only academic benefits, but health benefits and potential better returns to society is how they ended this study. So that is what I've got for you today. All right. Thank you, uh, Journal of Medicine, or, or whatever it was. Always nice when they descend from the mountaintop to say something about education, right? But you look, I mean, I, I think the, the top line for me is kind of right there at the end. You know, we, we all know that test scores or whatever predict long-term outcomes, but it's, it's kind of a narrow lens. And the fact that we don't track every kid's marijuana use or whatever ten, tends, to, I think, to lead us to actually undervalue quality schooling, I would say, right? I mean, if you really take this seriously, and it seems like we should, the implication is that schools have at least the potential to have these sort of knock-on effects on health and presumably on other things like crime and so forth. And yeah, I mean, I think it's incumbent on all of us who work in this sector to just kind of ad for, advocate for it every now and then, right? Not just on the funding side, but just in in terms of the priority that's given to it. Yeah, I mean, I, my other takeaway is, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious, right? Like, I, I don't think it will blow anybody buddy away to 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 learn that you know that social social groups have an impact on drug use. I guess the million dollar question is, or trillion dollar question, or whatever it is, is just whether we think these are systemic effects, right? In other words, if we think that their peers are higher quality or lower quality, would we really see the same impacts, you know, if we if we did this system wide? What do you think? Right. I don't know, David. I'm I'm with you. You know, obviously these are kids all applying to a very narrow band of, of high performing schools. So we've already got to take that into account. But I do feel like, I don't know, I always go back to teacher quality. We know how important a teacher is. 
We know that teachers can have impacts on outcomes other. I mean, we've heard about social emotional outcomes that high quality teachers can impact those outcomes, not just academic. So it's not a big stretch for me to think that they could, a high quality teacher in any sector could also have a, a positive impact on some of these risky behaviors and on, you know, supports for college going. It just underscores how little we know, right? Pick your debate, right? The debate about the disconnect between graduation rates and, and test scores, right? I mean, here's a totally plausible causal pathway, right? That means maybe, you know, folks on our side of that debate are wrong, or maybe we're not. Maybe <laughs> maybe kids who are more engaged in school, you know, are also less likely to do drugs and, and, and the causal arrow flows that way too. It's it's kind of hard to say. Speaking personally, I I am a little skeptical, and I say this as someone who considers himself a charter supporter, right? But I am a little skeptical that we would see these effects system-wide, right? In other words, I think it's entirely possible that charters have bigger sort of systemic effects on test scores and pure academic outcomes than they do on these sorts of outcomes. And I'm not quite sure why I say that, except that I just think they're very sticky and peer-driven and tougher to move. I, I don't disagree with you, but it, they strike me as inherently tougher to move for teachers and so forth to move and harder for the system to move. But you said something important in there in terms of our attention to these types of outcomes. I mean, Back in the day, and I will show my age here, you know, there was a big just say no push for kids. And that was a well-funded effort nationally to, you know, and I remember, um, you know, we had it at a school I was teaching at and, you know, it was part of what we were covering in homeroom and, you know, extracurriculars and that sort of thing. And granted, I have, you know, we didn't do an, an evaluation at my school but I can't recall any other effort since that one that just comes to mind as being something to impact, you know, risky behaviors for kids. I mean, do you remember just say no? <laughs> I Yeah, I remember all you got to say is no. I probably <laughs> <laughs> I probably experienced it from a different perspective than you. And then I think I'm pretty sure I said yes. But um, <laughs> I agree. You know, it it's interesting because, um, you know, I mean, obviously, the broader context here as well is that drug use and, and, and all these risky behaviors have declined among Gen Z, right? To the point where people are worried that kids aren't getting out enough. Right, right. And and, and marijuana is a completely different, uh, you know, it, marijuana in what, 20, whenever this was started, 2011, and how we're looking at it now is is different. I'll just leave it at that. Well, Amber Northern folks with the latest from the front lines. Listen, it's a good study. And it doesn't really tell me as usual what I want to know. But I, I think it's important for us to just remember that we just see a really small slice of the picture. Indeed. All right. I think that's probably all the time we have for today. So until next time, I'm Amber Northern. And I'm David Griffith of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.